Before we get started, a quick disclaimer, this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley. And with me as always, my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, a quick overview of this pod for those of you who are new to the show. We do a monthly links post at the end of every month where we highlight all the things that have caught our attention. And we use this podcast as an opportunity to build out on some of the different articles and topics that stood out to us. And then we'll also review some of the more interesting situations in event-driven land. We'll post a link to that post in the show notes. So Chris, there were a lot of things to potentially talk about this month. Most obvious probably would have been Sprint T-Mobile getting DOJ approval, but we talked about that a lot last month, so we can probably move on to some other topics for now. I figured we could have a bit more of a fun podcast and talk bubble IPOs, and the jumping off point for that would probably be two things that happened in just the past week. David Einhorn's Q2 letter with a ChewyPets.com comparison, and then Beyond Meat's unique secondary offering. So I'll kind of leave it up to you. Where do you want to kick it off? Good bubbly topics. I would like to start with Chewy and Pets.com. Yeah, I, I think that's perfect. So David Einhorn's uh, Q219 letter came out, and mm-hmm. the headline of it was kind of the online pet store Chewy was compared to the famous dot com, bubblestock, pets.com. You know, some things he mentioned were pets.com had burned $200 million in capital over its life. Chewy has burned $1.6 billion so far. Analysts don't expect Chewy to go profitable until 2023, yet it's valued at $14 billion, 30 times what pets.com got at its peak. And then he kind of took the ChewyPets.com comparison and he used it to move into talking about how the market feels more like a voting machine than a weighing machine right now, where he looks at really popular, hot story type stocks seem to really be getting bid up every day and more value cash flow type stocks seem to have no bid. And he says he looks forward to the day where the weighing machine will kind of kick in and stocks with a lot of cash flow will get a little bit more of uh, respect. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What do you think about Einhorn's letter, ChewyPets.com comparison, the voting weighing machine comparison right now? I don't own nor am I short Chewy. For me, it's one of these stocks that's kind of in the no man's land of it's not a bargain on valuation, but Einhorn is a, an impatient weigher in a world where the voting machines have gotten very durable. I mean, social media is a voting machine. Robinhood and all of the millennial-focused brokerages are voting machines. They're not about to transition into becoming weighing machines. So without a catalyst of a fraud or something, something that the timeline for something that is expensive-ish especially if it's expensive-ish and growing, is really hard to analyze. I'd also just point out the analogy is fun, and I don't know how serious he meant it, but we're just in a much bigger market for startups right now. So you can say these dollar figures, I, I could kind of come up with some trivial analogy to Silicon Valley a quarter of a century ago, and all of the numbers are bigger right now. I thought I thought it was a cute, like a cute headline grabbing uh, analogy. You know, obviously it gets tons of media and everything, but you know, pets.com, there weren't these distribution centers. It was much harder, like much more expensive to ship to consumers. They didn't have a lot of revenue. Like Chewy, they've got tons of revenue. They've got tons of adjacencies. And the thing in my mind, and I agree with you, the impatient weighing machine type thing, I, I 100% agree with you. But the thing that always worries me about the shorting anything that touches the internet is, I specifically remember when Facebook bought Instagram for, I believe it was a billion dollars. And I remember a ton of investors came on, really deep value investors, and said, this product with 
no revenue and 30 employees? How can they pay a billion dollars for it? Like, are they insane? And I think that was 2012. And here we are seven years later and Instagram's probably worth $150 mm-hmm. billion, dollars, you know? So in this world, like, we are not living in 2000. We're living in 2000, almost 20. And things that scale really quickly, one day they look crazy overvalued. And then the next day they can look insanely cheap. Now, I'm not saying Chewy's Instagram by any means, but I didn't know if I love that comparison. But I do agree with a lot of his other points. My, my recollection is you had the same thought on Instagram at the time, that you were always deferential to that being smart. That was really the first one where I remember until then, I had uh, people would talk all the time about Amazon is this crazy expensive thing. And then Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars. And I saw a ton of people come out about this. And I said, oh my God, guys, Like they haven't even started monetizing. But just look at look at this customer base and think about the synergies between Facebook and Instagram. I know it was going to be this much of a monster. But that was the first one that really opened my eyes that type of stuff. Absolutely. Um, And then one other thing I would just throw out about pets.com is my recollection, and this was just the very beginning of my career, even of any kind of awareness of the equity markets, but that there was quite a few number of hundreds of securities that were not making money, that looked very expensive, traded in very high multiples on the tech area. But that when you look at 2000 and you look at the kind of death knell of these guys, there was a very specific and extremely short period of time that they were all burning cash and the markets were seizing up on them. There's nothing like that right now for any of these companies, Chewy. Like the markets are so completely open to them that there's not, I mean, my recollection is 2000, the NASDAQ started to crash. Hundreds of companies had less than nine months of running right now. I, I think that's a great point. And the, the other thing is like, yes, Chewy would like access to the markets most likely, but if they didn't have access to the markets, they could really pull back and they could get, I, I think they could get cash flow break even really quickly by dialing down their growth. Whereas pets.com, it was a it was a stock in search of a business, right? They said, pets.com, we're going to advertise online, but if they couldn't raise cash, they, they were going to go out of business, right? Whereas Chewy has a sustainable business. Now, the only other thing I'd say is like, you know, shorting to Chewy, which is a, a quote unquote category killer in pets. You look at things, other category killers, Bonobos for pants, Jets.com for an Amazon kind of Amazon competitor, diapers.com, Zappos for shoes. All of those got taken out by uh, competitors at huge multiples. So mm-hmm. I'd be scared of that. I think we were a little hateful on the thesis, but I do agree with a lot of his thesis where he says it does feel like the voting machine is it's more voting machine than weighing machine right now. And I, I do agree with that. I'll, I'll throw it over. That, that, that part's right. One thing about this industry that I've always found to be an amusing stat is if you look at price elasticity and people's behavior with their pets and people's behavior with their own health, they're actually much, much more price sensitive to humans than to animals that once you have animals, people will, you know, whether or not they have the money, recession, whatever, do can can they pay their bills? They pay for their pets. <laughs> you you got a, a pup, what, uh, four months ago, uh-huh. five months ago? A little black lab puppy. Are, are you speaking from experience at this point? Uh, yeah. And our puppy's an unbelievable chewer too, like has a special notation of the vets. And so she is an unbelievably strong customer for pet toys because she just, uh, they last a day with her. Yeah. I, I just want to say uh, on the voting machine versus weighing machine stuff, you know, I, I think he's right. If you're a really sexy growth business, kind of like we'll probably talk about with Beyond Meat in a second, Mm -hmm. you can get a super high multiple. Or if you're just clearly a great business, and the one that's been coming to mind a lot for me recently is Progressive is clearly a great insurer. It's clearly a great company. I think I heard someone describe it once as a Mensa company that happens to be in the car insurance business or something. But you know, it trades at four times book value, and it's tough to look at an insurer, which is regulated, it takes capital to grow, 
the car insurance market is pretty, you know, pretty saturated. Stuff to look at and say, how are you going to get your money back at four times book value? And yeah, anyway, go ahead. What, what, one little thought on uh, Einhorn, who I like, respect, admire, great investor. If you look at his experience as a poker player, he plays a game where the put up or shut up moment has a very defined ritual between somebody's bluffing and now you find out the conclusion. Mm-hmm. In the capital markets, for me, and one of the reasons why I've always been very interested in corporate events, is the put-up-or-shut-up moment for any investment. You say, well, you know, there, there's the long term. The ultimate end of the long term is, to me, bankruptcy or return of capital. Yep. So you get acquired. You go bankrupt. Maybe you could say neither of those things should have happened. But in some respects, to me, that's the teacher's answers. That that was the right answer. Uh, the private market valuation, the terminal mm-hmm. valuation, you either get back nothing or you get back something and it was more or less than you put in. This is the old, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And that's why, it, you know, it, these things can be difficult. And, and, and the pace at which Kuntham goes from being in this stage to either bankrupt or acquired right now could be such a long time. So... It's one of these relationships between the current credit market and current equity market that it requires some deference to the voting machine in a world of voting machines, where if you say, you know what, I would like the world to make sense, you don't necessarily get the tempo that you're used to historically or you would like. It's not poker. It's a game that can stay very subjective for a long time. Yeah. And this is something I've actually been thinking about a lot with position sizing lately. Like, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, Fortune's Formula came out and every investor was like, we we just need to size our book based on the Kelly Criterion. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly, people realized, oh, Kelly Criterion is when like you have really defined timeline and you know your payoff really soon. It just, it really doesn't work for markets where, you know, sometimes if you're making a deep value investment, you don't know if it's good, if the payoff is going to come one year later, five years later, you don't know when it's going to come. That can be tough for investing. Before we go to Beyond Meat, you actually touched on credit. And I, I just wanted to quickly touch on another piece of Greenlight's letter. He mentioned he was shorting US corporate credit, mm-hmm. mainly as a macro position. And he mentioned a few different pieces to it. Credit spreads approaching historical tights, debt to equity ratios have risen, the economic recovery has been going on for a decade. So I don't want to read too much into it, but I, I did think it was interesting. He said, I've got a lot of cyclical exposure. Credit is the right macro hedge to put on here. I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. No big reaction to it. It's something I noted, something that we have, have, have not done. I think that I'm much quicker to find a category that to me, I could go through a hundred different, uh, set aside distress, just like corporate credits. I could go through a mm-hmm. hundred and say, this doesn't look like an opportunity. This doesn't. And I kind of much more quickly simply stay out of it than feel the need to take the other side. Yeah. Yeah. You and know, that's my, been my reaction so far. I, I agree with you. The, the one thing I worry with shorting credit is, there is a big mismatch between shorting credit and having cyclical exposure, mm-hmm. right? So you could you could envision a lot of worlds where your cyclical exposure goes way down because the risk, the market's slowing, but your bond shorts actually go way against you because interest rates are just getting slashed to the bone. You know, I think of something like Japan or something over the last 20 years where equities don't do great, but bonds, if you had bought at the beginning of 20 years, do great because interest rates are going. But Absolutely. I did think it was an interesting trade. Anyway, let's turn over to Beyond Meat if that works for you. Absolutely. So last night, Beyond Meat reported their Q219 earnings. And as part of their earnings, they announced a unique secondary offering sale from some of their insiders. And uh, what's unique about this is Beyond Meat IPO'd in May. And generally, as part of an IPO, you agree to a 180-day lockup where insiders can't sell shares. And... uh, you know, IPO buyers want that so they know insiders aren't about to dump all their shares on them. Uh, but with Beyond Meat shares up almost 10x since their IPO in May, 
the banks decided to waive the lockup so that they could uh, do this share and insiders could sell and lock in some gains. The market took this as a mild negative. I think shares were ended up down about 10% today. But given they're up about 33% so far this month, it's tough to uh, notice that 10x over the past what, four months, two months? Two months. Yeah, two months. Uh, anyway, what do you think about the insider lock expiration and just all things beyond me? Well, it really creates a lot of the dynamics around IPO frenzies. You know, there's two things that tend to work in lockstep. One is these valuations, but they're really based on a very small float. Second, you have a distribution of reactions to something. If you kind of pulled the whole world and said, you know, what what is this worth to you? And there's some people who hate it, some people who don't really care. And there's fanatics. The smaller the float, the the greater the impact of the fanatics on mm-hmm. price. And so for me, something to be rational. And even if you look at the very strongest form of efficient market theory, which I do not ascribe to, but if you can take the strongest, it does require a two-sided market of rational self-seeking people. And you don't have it when you have a very strong group of enthusiasts, a very small float. You have an inability of insiders to sell, and then you have an extremely expensive short. So if you love this, you can express it extremely conveniently. You can go on Robinhood and say, buy beyond. Extremely convenient thing to express one of two views on, an extremely inconvenient to express the opposite view. So this actually becomes more rational. This, you know, you own a little part of the business. It's more rational with a bigger float with insiders able to sell profit from what they've done. And uh, it's a better market. Yeah. Look, great for the insiders to get this locked up. I a hundred percent agree with you. You know, I think Beyond Meat was approaching a $15 billion market cap company. So it was, I think it was bigger than Campbell's Soup at that mm-hmm. point. And at $15 billion, I think it's free float before the secondary last night was still something like 500 million or something. So super tight free float. There was no ability, as you're saying, for you know, the right side of the most passionate fans could buy the stock, but the left side of people who doubted the business, thought it was overvalued, they simply couldn't short the stock because the float was too small. So as more shares come out, the price will, I, I think, as you're saying, that there's going to be a more rational market. You know, the thing, you look at this, and this is the definition, in, in my mind, the past two months have been the definition of a short squeeze here, where short you need shorts to short, but anyone who gets in front of this is just getting their face ripped off. There, mm-hmm. there was just no rational way you could justify Beyond Meat's uh, valuation today, yesterday, tomorrow, if it opens anywhere close to this. Like, I, I've run a bunch of different models. And however you look at it, you can't justify the numbers on the fundamentals. There's clearly something else going on here. And what that is, is if you were a vegan who wanted to bet on alternative meats, the only way to do that was beyond meat. There weren't a lot of shares out there. When you did that, you just kept driving the price higher and higher. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting with the SPAC process or all the different ways companies can enter the market. If the supply and demand between people who want to invest in something like this and tools for them to invest in, when that comes up, that should come right out of the Beyond Meat stock price. Meanwhile, it's kind of this frenzy, not only for the stock, but for uh, some connection with that one company. I'll be really interested when like Impossible Burger, I think they're going to IPO in the mm-hmm. next, within the next six months, I think, maybe the next year. But when they when they IPO and there's two different opportunities to invest in the, the fake meat alternative, I'll be really interested to see how Beyond Meat's uh, stock price responds to that. 
Anyway, I think we hit Beyond Meat and the Einhorn letter. Why don't we turn it over? You emailed me a really good story earlier about uh, what it takes for a bank to go bust in the current environment. Why don't you walk us through that? Uh, The article is Fire and Fraud, and it was in the Dallas News about a week ago. We'll post that link in the show notes as well. Why don't you walk us through it? I really enjoyed this story. I mean, two things that I've been thinking about. One is thinking about a business in terms of is it ultimately something that could be acquired? Is it ultimately something that could be bankrupt? And trying to have two sides of a market, it does require both things to happen on a regular basis to see that there are some rewards and there's some risk, not just the risk of the voting machine, but the actual weighing machine mm-hmm. uh, risk. And when you're making decisions in banks and thrifts, you're making decisions about risk. But we've had this period where Almost no banks have gone under. And then uh, enter press release we got right at the end of May. Texas Department of Banking closes the Enlo State Bank. And this was a just slam shut uh, regulator came in and closed a bank. And so the question is, in 2019, what does it take to go under. And so this was uh, not only a fraudster, but it was a fraudster that literally caught on fire and burned down. Um, so uh, <laughs> this was one that it probably would have uh, survived uh, one way or another. Uh, the article, which we'll post, ends. it's never a matter of if you're going to get caught, it's when you'll get caught. And in this case, they got caught when the thing burned down. No, I just love it because, A, it's just so funny. Like in kind of a booming economy, a booming market, the only way for a bank to go bust is if it's both a fraud and it catches on fire. So the fraud can't be maintained because the building is literally on fire. But, you know, I'd love to talk some more about the thing. But the one thing I've been on a big fraud book reading kick, which I've mentioned several times. And the one thing that struck me with this and with all frauds is frauds, they seem to be going great. And when they unravel, they unravel fast. And it's often for reasons that you, you don't imagine, you know, with Bernie Madoff, it was the financial crisis hit. And within a month, boom, gone. And with this, Fire, boom. You don't see it coming, boom. Everything's up in flames. People are going to jail. The company's closed. It's a very uh, stressful thing for them to have to keep going. You know, if you're doing something that is honest, if you're doing analysis or doing writing or anything, you can drop it and pick it up where you left off or come back later. And there should be a lot of overlap between your new thoughts and your old thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, some of my kind of better writing things I've done is when I've inadvertently lost a draft and I said, fine, I'll just write what I really think and kind of dash off something new that's actually a lot cleaner uh, version of writing than earlier. But these frauds, they not only have to keep the business going, but they have to reconnect with all the old lies they've said. (laughs) And then the real world kind of reveals things that are unavoidable. And so it's something that's kind of this multidimensional effort that you have to keep going 24 hours a day or you go to jail. And it's it's a lot. And eventually that uh, becomes impossible. I mean, it's crazy. But to me, and you and I were talking about this before the podcast, but the amount of work ethic, as you said, like you have to, if you're running a fraud, you have to be on all the time or else the fraud will collapse if you slip up once. The work ethic and the amount of stress, like I read these books on frauds and I am having trouble sleeping at night just reading about the fraud and I'm not even participating in them. You know, the ability to handle that much stress and work so hard feels like there are better avenues for you to use those talents because those are talents. They're awful talents, but they are talents. And, and the market value is probably, you know, if you look at everybody who stole defrauded, call it $10 million, they probably have a market value of at least call it $100,000 a year just in the gumption. You know, if they were pharma sales reps or did something where you could just kind of do work every day, knock on doors, and I hope we don't get hate mail from pharma (laughs) sales reps is the kind of thing a fraudster could do. But I mean, uh, just if, if you look at the drive they had, 
and put it in some honest direction, even without any actual morality, they would have probably had a much better expected value than these kind of convoluted uh, schemes. Yeah, it's it just crazy. Anything else from the uh, the bank article you want to go through or anything? Oh, that was the big one, just its existence uh, that you have to work very hard right now, which is funny. I, I had a banker early in my career tell me that if you look at banks and thrifts and if you look at their lending standards, they never are talking about or doing the things that matter because after a crisis, they make no bad loans for some significant period of time, (laughs) none whatsoever. And they're panicked and they're constantly meeting and they're looking at lending standards when they're making no bad loans. And then in the boom periods, they're not thinking about the standards at all. They're making tons of bad loans. So you can go through an entire cycle, never actually talking about or doing the things that matter when it comes to lending. We are certainly in the uh, phase right now where it's a low worry and there's no evidence day to day or month to month that it matters. A, a, a bad credit will probably be fine and a good credit will probably yeah. be fine. You know, it's funny, like the older I get, the two things that upset me are A, like everything people told me about getting old is completely true mm-hmm. and B, like all these folksy wisdoms that Warren Buffett said, like you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Like it's so folksy and then it applies to so many areas of life and it's like the two things that most upset me because I was like, oh, there's got to be a contrarian take here, but <laughs> no, like they're right. And in this case, like you're making loans during boom times. You don't know who's actually lending conservatively until things start to go a little wrong. And one bank, all of a sudden, they're writing off their entire loan portfolio. And the other bank saying, nope, you know, we had one or two defaults, but everything's great. And we're going to take a lot of market share here. So two things that upset me the most about growing up. Absolutely. Yep. Anything else you want to talk about or should we wrap it up here? I have nothing to add. Great. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We're looking forward to talking to everyone next month. Chris, you know what? There's one thing else. One other thing I wanted to mention. Beyond Meat, I I am a fan of the product. I think uh, we need to do a little bit more on the health. It seems like the health pieces are a little funky, but I, I, I think it tastes pretty darn good. Yeah, I love it. Although the biggest health direction I've been thinking about for the last month or two is that the processed food mm-hmm. uh, direction, we really don't know what it is. There's no chemical connection of carbs, protein, fat, calories, anything that can explain why. But if you just look at morbidity, unprocessed food better than processed food, pretty much whatever combination of unprocessed stuff you put in your body of whole foods, kind of the outside aisle in the grocery store, you live longer and you die uh, unexpectedly less frequently and at less young ages uh, than if you have any kind of processed foods, including plant-based processed yeah. foods. And I think that is an interesting like bear thesis, right? Like Beyond Meat, their whole thing is we are healthier. Yeah. Part of it is we're better for the planet than meat. But another thing is healthier, less less cholesterol and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting, five years from now, are we going to come back and be like the worst thing in the world you could eat? It, it turns out it is. It's really ambiguous in the health stuff. The thing that's unambiguous is we cannot have the developing world eat the way the developed world does vis-a-vis meat without horrific environmental consequences. And it's very hard to say, hey, let's eat the way we eat and then force them to eat (laughs) differently when they're about to make enough money to afford meat. Yep. Agreed there. Anyway, let's end it on that somewhat hour note. We're looking forward to talking to you guys next month and uh, see you then.